Episode 71 of Shaman on Batman. On today's episode, we have Paul Dini returning to the podcast cave. Paul is hands down one of the greatest Batman writers of all time, and when they decide to put up the Mount Rushmore Batman contributors, Paul's face will be placed right next to Bob Kane, Bill Finger, Denny O'Neill, and Neil Adams. Paul has contributed to so many amazing things to the character of Batman, from creating Harley Quinn to writing and developing great shows like Batman the Animated Series and Batman Beyond. He is he also has had a hand in the feature-length animated films in Batman Mask of the Phantasm and Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Additionally, Paul is an Eisner Award-winning author for writing The Amazing Mad Love. If you ha haven't had a chance to check out Paul's new graphic novel, Dark Knight, A True Batman Story, I'm telling you now, as soon as you are done listening to this episode, order that online or find your nearest comic book store to pick that book up. This is the first graphic novel to bring tears to my eyes. Welcome back to the show, Paul Dini. Hey, hey guys, how are you? Good, how Not are bad. You? Thanks for coming on, man. Awesome. My pleasure. So let's jump right into it. Um, as a kid, you uh, you when, we're, when we were reading the the uh, Dark Knight story, like you you, you showed like a photo, uh, a panel of the Fleischer Superman. Yeah. Did you ever, when watching that? And you, you, you know, you thought to yourself, like, man, why don't they do a Batman? Did you ever think for a moment, like, maybe one day I'll be the one developing the definitive Batman animated show? No, you know, not at the time that I saw the Fleischer Supermans because I was in college and I really had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I liked writing. I liked drawing cartoons. I liked acting. I liked goofing around on the radio. So I was hoping I would get a job that would somehow involve one of those. Um, it was one of those things I always wanted to see. As a as a fan, after watching the uh, the Fleischer cartoons, because I I was thinking like, boy, they could do a lot with with Batman. The Fleischer cartoons didn't really have much in the way of villains. It was mostly mad scientists or spies or natural uh, disasters or monsters or something. And I thought if you could if they could get into the arch villains in Batman at the time, like the Joker and Two Face and some of the others, that would be an incredible animated series um, of, of shorts to do. But they never did, and I always thought it was because Batman, at the time, I always thought that Batman might have been a more second-tier character back in the 40s. Superman and Captain Marvel and Captain America were, were probably the ones that they were developing, and Batman was probably a little more obscure until the 60s, and then he got his own TV show. I know he was, he was popular in publications, but and he'd show up on the Superman show, every, uh, radio show every once in a while. But I always felt like until he was in the Adam West show, he was like, you know, un un undiscovered territory. Yeah, yeah. So last time we had you on the show, we were uh, we were closing into that Batman vs Superman date. Mm -hmm. What uh, what did you think about the film? Well, you know, I enjoyed parts of it. I thought Ben Affleck makes a great Batman, and um, uh, I, I feel like these are the a lot of the superhero movies have to be such epics that. Little things fall by the wayside, and that's a statement I can make pretty much about every superhero movie I've seen so far this year. So I, I feel like, uh, you know, they, these are big, such big epics, and they have so many characters to service that some of the details get lost. Like in Civil War, I, I didn't really know who the villain was until I came home and read an account of it on Wikipedia. And uh, to me, um, you know, uh, Baron Zemo is a guy with... Uh, you know, the crown and the cloth over his head and uh, you know, like the, you know, Red Skull, Dr. Doom type guy. Right. And here he was just a guy who hated the Avengers. It took me a long time in the movie to figure out exactly who he was and and why. And I guess that was the point. It was sort of interesting that a regular guy who's, who's angry could bring down the Avengers or, uh, or break them up. But I, again, it was sort of, you know, I was, I was kind of hoping for something a little bit more. Um uh, there was a, a little bit of the same feeling, Batman, Superman, and then Suicide Squad. It's just that I felt that they could have been a little cleaner as far as the villains and the motivations and everything. I felt a lot of the things about the characters, uh, they had gotten really right. 
it was fun seeing Batman in action and, and things like that. It's just that, you know, they're starting to do it, I think, with Super, with Suicide Squad. And what I really loved about that movie is you saw little vignettes that really spoke to the heart of DC Comics and DC Comics fans. Like, you know, uh, The Flash or, uh, taking down Boomerang and the scene with Deadshot and Batman and Batman and Harley on the, on the car. That's great stuff. And that doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to have the whole gravitas of an origin story and a subplot and a romance. You can just get right to the meat of it. And I, and that's what I really loved about, especially about Suicide Squad, is you've got such a, a flavor of the DC universe. And, you know, judging by what the audience thought, the audience is right with that. So let's let's not do the origin stories anymore. Let's not do the the romance, the DC stories. Let's just get right to the action and, and, and make a movie about the good stuff. It's all there. Yeah, you actually wrote a draft for Batman versus Superman and Batman Beyond. Can you talk a little bit about those those drafts and like how the how you got involved with Batman versus Superman and Batman Beyond the live action versions? Uh, sure. Um, this is some years back. It was about um, probably about fifteen, sixteen years ago. It was when we were doing uh, Batman Beyond or, or wrapping up Batman Beyond. There was some interest in developing. The, the series as a live action movie and potential franchise and the director that Warner Brothers had chosen to spearhead it, Boaz Yakin, uh, you know, was interested in working with myself and Alan Burnett and, uh, and uh, as, uh, as writers on, on the project. So uh, it was an interesting way of working because Boaz took it, wrote the first draft, and then um, Alan and I came in, and, and we had story meetings and everything uh, with him along the way. But it was just one of those things that just never seemed to gel. And I think a combination of Boaz's busy schedule and another project he wanted to take, and and uh, it just that one just sort of fell by the wayside. And then uh, the we Alan and I did owe the uh, studio another draft of of a script, and they had cooled on the Beyond concept, so they said, "Well, what about Batman Superman?" which was an idea they wanted to pursue. So we came up with ideas on that. We went through a, a period of pitching and, and story development. And again, it was just sort of the wrong time for it because they hadn't really figured out what they wanted to do with really either character. They thought pairing them up at some point would be a good idea, but you know, they didn't know if they wanted to go back and do a, a regular Batman movie, a regular Superman movie. And, you know, finally it just, it just sort of, you know, we, we, we went in and we met with various people and various production people who had, you know, ties to the prospective director at the time. And it was it was it was a hard process of just trying to surmount hurdles of getting to be heard by somebody who could make a decision. And ultimately, it was one of those things where they just said, yeah, you know, here, we're going to just call it a day, pay off. And, and, and that's it. So, you know, it's standard development stuff that happens all, all the time. And I think it was a few years after that they decided, okay, we're going to do, we like Christopher Nolan's take on, on Batman and we're just going to reboot the whole thing and, and, and see where we go from there. So it was, it was like we did get to turn it back, so to speak, but it was really, you know, it was, it, for, a, for a variety of reasons, it just, it just didn't happen. And that's, that kind of goes with working with a big corporation. It, it's all what their needs are at the time and how they want to. Uh, how they want to start things off. So, you know, that, that's how that worked out. Well, can we just take like two seconds and get Rihanna? She just tried to call in. Sure. Sorry. If I do, I seem like who closed off everything. Okay. All right. All right. What are we doing here? All right. Here we go. Good. All right. Cool. Uh, I have a question. Um, so sure. I recently um, rewatched the um, the uncut version of uh, Return of the Joker, um, uh -huh. and I thought there was a I saw a really cool like side by side comparison of stills that were in the original and then stills that were in the uh, in the TV movie, and it's a way more graphic cut to watch the uncut version. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I was wondering, um, is any of that were you involved in any of the cuts that were made to that? Because like when when Joker says you know when his last words are that's not funny. And that doesn't make it into the final cut of the film. Like, how does that make you feel as a creator? Well, it was a it, that uh, was a rather um, uh, that was a rather um, um, kind of frustrating process with uh, creatively with that with that um, with that uh, 
with that movie and the fact that we started production of a mind to do a very specific thing. And then uh, once the movie was completed, we had to change it. And part of the reason was um, uh, it was, uh, I'm trying to uh, get, get everybody on screen here. I can't, I can't really do that. All right. Uh, part, of, part of the reason was uh, when we started production, we were told, make this the Batman Beyond movie you want to make, as if you're making a live-action movie. And um, and uh, just just go, you know, don't make it R-rated, but make it, you know, put a lot of action in it and everything like that. And what happened was we started production, and by the time the film was, was ready, again, you know, there's a lot of back and forth that goes on in the promotion of the movie and, and the creation of the movie that has nothing to do with the movie itself. It has to do with promotion and getting it out there and then other people who see the movie. And ultimately what happened was the version of Batman Beyond we were making for Kids WB was um, fell within their their um, uh, standards and practices. And they would give us notes about things where they felt it was too extreme for some of the action and, and, and things and things like that. And there was also, uh, and also the network at the time, their uh, children's uh, division had uh, some creative input into the scripts and into the ideas of, of, of what we were presenting. We did mask when we did, uh, I'm sorry, this is Return of the Joker, right? Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Um, when we did Return of the Joker, we were told none of that matters. Just go ahead and make the movie. Well, a year later, it did matter because what happened was, again, it, it's hard to explain, but there were they were talking about various things like a theatrical release. They were talking about a separate toy line. They were talking about a tie-in with fast food companies. They were talking about all these things that would accompany like a major, you know, uh, animated film release. And for whatever reason, it just never happened. And we needed to get promotion for the movie. And the only place we found out we could get promotion was on Kids WB. And the only way they would allow us to promote the movie on, on Kids WB is if the creative people who were assigned to the show had final cut over the episode. So they looked at it and they said, it's a kid with a gun. He's killing the Joker. We can't allow this. We will not promote this. And we strongly advise against you releasing this. And it was kind of a nightmare, but we had to go back in and reanimate that scene in order to get some promotion for the uh, release of the DVD. And, you know, they promoted us for maybe a weekend on Kids WB. And then uh, we had had this draft version of the movie that everybody had really liked, had really loved, and that we thought was strong and powerful. And, you know, we weren't able to present it the way we wanted. And the, um, and the, uh, the win in the situation was, look, let them release the movie. You know, you have to release the movie and do it the, the way that the, the censor wants to cut. And then we'll come out with an uncut version, you know, next year. So we, that, that's what we had to do. And it was just a way of, of, you know, because we thought we were able to do it in a way that it would get out to a wider audience at the last minute. They said, no, it's, it's for kids and you got to cut it. Wow. That's so the uncut version came out for the collectors and, you know, to this day, that's the version I think is, is I consider the real cut. It's far superior as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, because WB is around anymore. <laughs> either, so. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about Batman v Superman. Yeah. Now everyone wants to know what it was your thought on Suicide Squad and what what's your thought, what's your take on Margot Robbie's take on the character you created, Harley Quinn? Well, I thought Margot did a really terrific job, and I and I loved all the uh, nods to her origin, such as the uh, elements of Mad Love that were were uh, alluded to that they did in the therapy session with her and the Joker. Um, some of their relationship, and uh, of course the brief flash of, of her in the Bruce Tim costume, as interpreted by Alex Ross, you know, in the in the little dance sequence they did there, and I felt that she had a really good sense of humor about capturing the character, and there are moments where you see that it is that that, that her her mind is always working. There's that moment where. She is sitting on top of the car, sad that it looks like the Joker has died, and she takes off the collar and throws it away. And then the team comes up, and suddenly she's all smiling again. And it just, there was a lot, it, it, she really captured the kinetic 
and, and energy of the character and a character who was always, you know, bouncing from one thing to another. And I felt that that worked very well and especially worked well for the version of Harley that's in um, Suicide Squad now. And if anything, it just proved to me like, yeah, that character can support her own movie. Yeah. You just have to come up with, uh, you know, a, a good tight story and a reason for her to be doing, you know, what she's doing. And, uh, and uh, because I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'll just say it. I think a lot of the reason the movie has made the money it's made is because of the appeal of the characters, particularly Harley and, and the relationship she has with Deadshot. You know, Harley and Deadshot are, you know, the big draws of the movie. And I would watch a solo movie about either one of those those characters. So did anyone from the Suicide Squad film ever reach out to you on advice on how to interpret these characters? No. No. I, I, that's that's a division I, I have no contact with at all. I, it, it's... The people making the movies are, you know, their own thing. Like, the last time you were on the show, you talked about how exciting it was to you, for you to see, like, the trailer of mm -hmm. Batman on top of the car, you know, right. trying to take out the Joker and Harley. When you saw that for the first time, like, you talked about, like, last time the animated show, how awesome it was to, like, write those scenes. And yeah. what was it like for you to see those scenes, you know, really come to life live action? You know, Jared Leto as a Joker, Margot Robbie as... Uh, Harley Quinn and Ben Affleck as Batman. Well, I thought it was great. I just wanted more of it. You know, I, I felt that the the take that Jared had as the Joker was really good and really interesting. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I, I knew nothing about the movie, absolutely nothing other than what I'd seen in little clips uh, before going in to see it. And, and, and I was under the impression the Joker was the villain of the movie. And I thought it was something like, I don't know, the Suicide Squad had already been in place and... Um, the Joker is doing something heinous and evil and Batman for whatever reason can't get at him. And so they bring in Harley to join the team and then they go after the Joker. And, um, so to see that it had such a heavy supernatural element to it, I, you know, it took me completely by surprise. And, and the Joker is just kind of a guy who wants his girlfriend back. And, you know, I thought, and, but I, I thought his take on the character was really interesting and really scary. And from the minute I saw the character, Jared's version of, of, of the Joker, I thought, well, this is a version that kind of scares me because he looks, he looks like a, a combination of a you know a death rocker and a and a and a, and a gangster, you know, a modern day yeah. gangster. So you know that's that, that's really great. I thought he was going to be the whole movie, and um, and I was surprised that he was not. I definitely felt like the Joker felt more like a uh, like a mob boss style character yeah. than the crazy over the top Joker. And something else that I thought was different about Joker was you brought it up the way that he like loved Harley Quinn, the way that he really wanted his girlfriend back. How do you, right. did you like their, their chemistry as like that couple that they showed in the film? Yeah, I, I did because I, you know, and I, and, and I know that their, their relationships in the comic books have been varied. Uh, but if this is the first time that a movie audience sees the Joker and Harley, let's give them a place to go from if, if it, um, I don't, I certainly didn't mind that he came after her, that he seemed to love her or that he had this passion for her. I feel like, you know, you, let's not do the whole Joker Harley relationship in one movie. Let's show him, let's show them, uh, you know, having a happy ending and then go from there with the next movie and say, you know, then you can bring in more of the, 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 the idea that he, um, he's not the world's greatest boyfriend and, that she's stuck on him and maybe shouldn't be and the relationship sours in some way and she gets away from him. But sure, you know, this, I didn't think this was bad. I mean, you know, the, at the, in the middle point of mad love, what, the comic book, when Harley breaks him out of jail, they're, they're laughing it up and they're having a great time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, let's make that the end point of suicide squad. And from there on their relationship develops and, uh, maybe blossoms for a while and then sours. Let's, let's, I'd like to go back to that and see, you know, how they how they handle that. That's awesome. <laughs> Rihanna, I know you're dying to ask another question. Go for it. Um, I have a couple. Yeah. Um, so um, I I guess uh, did you feel when you started writing for Batman? Um, I mean, I know you started with Tiny Toon Adventures. How did you get started initially with WB? And what advice would you give people that want to do what you do? Well, what had happened was I had um, been writing animation for about ten years prior. Uh, before joining nine or ten years before I joined Warner Brothers, and my career had been in sort of a 
developing stage where I was getting work in the early 80s wherever I could get it. There was a lot of work available to people who did animation or wrote animation or wanted to produce. That was back when Saturday morning TV was um, a major entertainment force on, on television networks. And also afternoon TV was, uh, was rising and was very powerful. So it was a good time to start a career. And in the early 80s, I wrote for just about every show that I could get an assignment on. And occasionally I would, you know, go for a year working at a studio like Ruby Spears or from or Filmation. And then in the later 80s, I, I worked at, at Lucasfilm for a while, uh, for about four years there. And that was just prior to Tiny Tunes. But while I was starting my career, I met a guy named Tom Ruger, who was a very creative uh, writer and producer who spearheaded the development and the creation of Tiny Toons and Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain and probably about a dozen shows I'm forgetting. But uh, we became very good friends, and he liked my work a lot. I liked his work a lot. So even when I was uh, working up at Lucasfilm, if I had time to do a freelance assignment for him, um, he was working at Hanna-Barbera at the time, I would do it. And he, when he was uh, putting together the team for uh, Tiny Toons, uh, the work I was doing at Lucasfilm was drying up, and he said, well, why don't you move back to L.A. and, and uh, you know, I'll put you to work on this show. And that sounded really great because I've loved Warner Brothers history and I really loved the idea of, of jump-starting the company again and doing a lot of production. What they were doing sounded very exciting. And so I moved back, started in on Tiny Toons, and once that was a hit, Gene McCurdy began looking around to develop other Warner Brothers properties, which included the Tiny Toon legacy characters like Sylvester Tweedy and the Tasmanian Devil and uh, things that never got on the air, such as the Griswolds from um, the vacation movies and Gremlins and various other things that they, they had the rights to. And one of the others was uh, Batman. And I was fond of the character, and Jean knew that I was fond of the character. And so she encouraged people to submit ideas. And so uh, Bruce Tim and Eric Radomsky and myself all submitted ideas. We all wound up you know, being put together in a loose group of, of folks who were going to develop Batman as a, as a series. So it was, I, I sort of laid the groundwork for it in the previous nine years, working for other studios in town. But I also had read a lot of comics, and I loved the characters and knew a lot about them. So uh, it wasn't like somebody just assigned me something that I had no connection to. Once the opportunity came up, I said, yeah, I'd really like to work on Batman. I'd really like to work with these guys on it. Let's let's talk some Batman, like the, sure. your, their, your new your new graphic novel, Dark sure. Knight: A True Batman Story. Mm-hmm. At yeah. what point were you like, you know what? I need to this the story's worth telling. If it if Batman has been a, you know a light for so many other people, and he's kind right. of been a light for me. What point were you like, I need to write, I need to put pen to paper and just write this all out? Well, you know, it had been a story that had been in the back of my head for a long time. I thought I would tell something about it, like whether it was a personal memoir or, you know, something I was going to write up, uh, you know, as a book or something. And it never, every time I dusted off and looked at it, I wasn't really sure as how to, how to tell the story. And it wasn't until about four years ago, my wife Misty and I were on a podcast with Kevin Smith. He, um, he was uh, doing one of his podcasts in the morning with his wife, Jennifer, and we're all pretty good friends, and they invited us over to to chat on their show. And one of the stories Kevin wanted to hear was a story about how I got mugged around the time I was working on Batman. And I think I had mentioned it to him at some point before that it had happened, and uh, he just thought it would be interesting to tell, you know, to tell the story, like, you write Batman, here's a guy, and you've been encountered, you know, had an encounter with real-life street crime. So as we were talking about the story and I was telling him what I went through, uh, he said, if that had happened to me, I don't think I could have ever left my apartment again. Yeah. And I, that seemed inconceivable to me because he's, you know, Kevin Smith, he's out there. He's the ballsiest guy I know. He, you know, makes, you know, great movies and he's, and he does those great talks on the back and forth. And he's pretty fearless. You know, he'll confront anybody. He just confronted a guy online the other day with one of the most eloquent things I'd ever seen about approaching an, uh, you know, a guy with an online grudge. And so the guy's pretty fearless, and I couldn't imagine, you know, something like a mugging taking him out of action. But he said, you know, if it had hit me at the right time, I probably would have. And I thought, well, you know, maybe that's so. And maybe that has happened to a lot more people than, you know, I, I, I recognize. And that people can use some 
uh, help getting on their feet again. And one of the things that helps is, is to hear how somebody else did it. So that really became the impetus was the idea that uh, I could tell a story about somebody who had gone through something that other people might perceive as a setback and, and managed and forced myself to come back from it. And the idea that it was a crime, uh, a violent street crime, and that I was writing Batman at the time, kind of uh, made it all, all the more poignant, I guess you'd say. And there was, and you know, it, and I, I look back at the time when I was writing Mask of the Phantasm with with Alan Burnett and uh, Michael Reeves and Marty Pasco, and that was right around the time I got mugged, and I didn't want to write anymore, and I didn't want to write Batman, and so it was interesting for me to go back and search my feelings and. Uh, look at old writings I sat down at that time and kind of weave that into the, uh, the pitch that I eventually took to, to uh, Dan and Dio and um, Jeff Johns and uh, Shelley Bond. And, and from that came uh, the Dark Knight, um, the Dark Knight book. Was it always your idea to do it in this graphic novel style, like with the, the comic strips and all that? Or did you kind of lean more towards just a straight up novel at one point? Well, I... I've never, I've never written a long novel. I've written some short stories and things like that. And I, I love the visual medium, whether it's television or movies or, or comics. And I thought because this involves animation and it because it involves, you know, Batman, why not do it as a graphic novel? Why not do it in the most visual way I, I could, you know, I, I, uh, it was not, I'm not really set up to make a film out of it. And I, yeah. I need to explore the story first and graph and graphic novels and comics are a form that I feel very comfortable with. So I felt, well, let's do it in this form and, and, and see if, if I can tell the story. And, you know, I, I've, I've been a big fan of certain autobiographical stories such as Mouse and a lot of R. Crumb's work and uh, Harvey Picar and, and uh, Steve Siegel's own It's a Bird, which I thought was a phenomenal book. And, uh, and the more I thought about Dark Knight as a um, graphic novel, the more I thought about it as it could be kind of the Batman bookend to uh, Steve's uh, Superman uh, story. And DC thought of it as the same way. And I also felt like it was a good way to just explore a lot of things that in prose that would just not, uh, that would be hard to convey. And if you could see it, you would get it. And I think it turned out to be the best choice, certainly the way that Eduardo uh, rendered the story. Uh, speaking of Eduardo, how did you and him get involved in the project together? Like, how did, where does he start in all this? Well, I've always been a big fan of Eduardo's from reading uh, 100 Bullets and a lot of his uh, uh, Batman work. And he was on a short list of artists that we had been considering, Shelley Bond and myself. And uh, there, have been, there were like two or three guys that, that we went back and forth on suggesting, and Eduardo was always a, you know one of those two or three guys. And once I looked at, you know, I sat down and I, I, I um, made copies of a lot of hundred bullets pages and I pinned them up in my writer's room. Some of them were still up here. I thought, boy, he's really got the quality of, of storytelling and uh, sensitivity and menace and danger that I really need in the story. And I was delighted that he wanted to do it. And, you know, the first thing I told him is, Look, as much as I'm known for the animated series style and as much as I love it, let's not do this because we have to have some sort of a contrast because the story you're telling is like the real story. And when in the few times we do see the animated series, we have to have that sort of visual contrast between the two of them. It just it, it wouldn't play if it all looked like it was it was just one thing. It looks incredible. It, it, I was blown away by it. It's so gripping and moving especially when you get to those really violent like there were tears and i didn't even realize i was crying i was just like i'm a 27 year old man and i'm like i'm crying over a graphic novel but it's the the story's so you know gut-wrenching it because it's it, it's a true story a true account of what happened to you and you're just laying it all out on the table and it's therapeutic for people who I'm sure who have, have gone through terrible things and they're, and you're able to talk about it. So I'm sure other people are like, if he can do it, I can do it. And that's why yeah. you're so fearless when it comes to that. Well, that, that was the idea. You know, it was like, uh, thank you also. Um, I just wanted to say, look, you know, this chubby bastard who writes cartoons can do it. You can do it. Come on. You know, <laughs> just put your life back together. And it's, it's, uh, it's just, um, 
the other thing that made it easier to write that story, it, it was it was hard in some parts, but it was the knowledge that I'm not I'm not that guy anymore. I, and he became more of a of a character that I could um, tell a story about. It's a sales call. Screw him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so um, so he was not a. It, it was more like I was an observer of that guy's life. I'm a guy who I knew pretty well, but I was no longer that, that person in a lot of ways. Whereas if I was still living that lifestyle or, you know, a lot of, of in the manner that I was myself that I depicted earlier in the book, I don't think I could have written that story. It would have been the same story. And it wasn't the same story that when I started writing it, because there was still some anger in it. And, um, uh, uh, anger directed at myself and my attackers and the situation and the writing process was important because it allowed me to let go of a lot of that of that anger and look at it more objectively it was sort of like um, you know uh, maybe what a snake feels like once it sheds its skin and looks back at this big old wrinkly thing lying there and it's like uh, you know it, you, you can't imagine you know ever being in that thing but once you see it you can kind of say oh yeah that's that's the old me this is the new me great wow i've never had anyone ever use an analogy like that in my entire life <laughs> Damn i know weird. I, I think that fixed in my head when i went and saw the new version of the jungle book there's a scene where mowgli is going through the jungle and he trips over this giant snake skin and you know okay the big snake's showing up but and when i saw that it's like i remember the line from the jungle book where Ha says to Mowgli at the end of the Mowgli stories, it's hard to cast off the old skin. And yet you do, and you look back at, at what you were before, and now you're something new. So, wow. you know, there's a little nod to Roger Kipling in there, I guess. Wow. Take it away, Rihanna. <laughs> okay. um, wow. All right. So uh, you've won, like, five Emmy Awards for animation. Um, Arkham Asylum got Game of the Year in 2009. Uh, Madlib won the Eisner Award. You've got Annie Awards and Harvey Awards. Um, what are you most proud of? Probably my Ink Pot Award that I got from San Diego Comic Con. Nice. It's just it's just a reward from the fans, and I love it. And a reward from the comic convention. And I, when I went to the first comic, my first San Diego Comic Con, I heard there was this thing that they gave to the cartoon, the really good cartoonists, we call the Ink Pot Award. And you know, Jack Kirby had one, Walt Kelly had one, guys I was just beginning to know, like. Mark Evanier and Sergio Aragones all had one. And to me, that was sort of like the badge of success and acceptance among the grand wizards of, of cartoons. So this was something I grew up loving. And when I finally got one, it was uh, the Emmys were nice and everything else was nice. But this was sort of spoke to my childhood. It was like, you know, the uh, the bowling trophy or the, the, the hundred yard dash trophy I never won from for athletics. You know, I got the Inkpot Award and that. It, you know, it sort of trumped everything else. It's awesome. Go for it. Um, how do you feel about the uh, recent decision to bring Jeff Johnson as like the uh, the overseer of the whole DC films? Do, do you think that that's going to be a win for the comic book guys because he's just he he knows how to keep these worlds the way that they need to be? Well, I think it's about time. You know that that. It, it, Whenever anybody says to me, it's like, I just say, yeah, finally. <laughs> if needed somebody uh, with, uh, you know, like Jeff, with Jeff's intelligence and his passion and his, his talent for creating those stories to run the show over there. Because, you know, people have said to me over the years, and I'm very flattered when they say this, why aren't you writing those, those movies? Why aren't you, you know, going in there and pitching those ideas? Why aren't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of that was in the, when we talk about uh, Batman, Superman, and Batman Beyond. Is you know, uh, it's a different mindset over there. The, you know, you, the people who run the studio are not necessarily aware of what goes on in the animation division or what makes those powerful or, or uh, you know worthwhile adaptations of the DC characters because they're just not into them. I mean, they, these are guys who who if they read comics, it was a long time ago. And they're fixated on movies, and they look at movies a certain way. They look at animated cartoon shows the same way, and and there's no real connection in in their in their in their vision about how those would link in or how to take advantage of one or the other. Like a guy like Walt Disney, for instance, years ago, 
had a, had a group of artists and, and story people that he had with him when they were doing the Mickey Mouse shorts right up till he was doing the Jungle Book and Mary Poppins. And he knew their talents and knew where to assign them. And he knew, you know, okay, this guy's been writing for me on this live action picture, but I'm going to put him to work on these cartoons because I know he's, I need his touch there. There's nobody like that at, at Warner Brothers or there hasn't been any to look at the whole company and go, this guy's really good here and I, we can use him over here. And because it's all separate deals, there's, you know, we have to have this guy on a term deal. This, you know, it all breaks down into economics and politics and things that really don't make, make much sense unless you're at a studio like Disney, which is kind of, you know, all under like one, has been lucky to be under one creative head for most of the time. At Warner Brothers, they look for, you know, if I had made a movie that had been out there that I made for about $10 million and made $150 million and had some sort of fantasy bent on it, okay, you're a guy we want to talk to because we have all these characters, so pick a character. You want to do Hong Kong Fui the movie? We own the rights yes. to Hong Kong Yes. To uh, Martian Manhunter? Do Martian Manhunter. We don't, yes. we don't care. We want to be in business with you. And if you want to do one of our fantasy properties, good. It means you understand them. What they, you know, what, by bringing Jeff in, you've got a guy who knows these characters backwards and forwards, and not just um, the DC characters. He knows the Hanna Barbera characters. He knows the Warner Brothers characters. He knows everything. So he is a good guy who will bring in people whom he can, you know, mix and match or write the stuff himself. Uh, I'm hoping that they give him the um, the the green light to, you know put these things in into into production and, and get them all the way through production. And um, because once, you know, if they allow him that power and he brings that vision to it, it it's going to be a great idea because the things that he's not going to do himself, he can give to people he knows can do the job. He's proven that with uh, his track record on uh, the uh, DC shows on, on, um, on TV, on TV, on the CW and, and elsewhere because uh, Flash and Supergirl and, Arrow are all very true to their roots, and I know that he's been heavily involved in that. So if he brings that same feeling to the movies, and I think the movies are going to straighten themselves out uh, pretty quickly, and they're going to follow um, a united vision. You know, uh, at least that's my hope. Right. You talked about Hong Kong Fui and Martian yeah. Manhunter. But yeah. one thing that we, we talked about last time is Jingle Bell. Is there yeah. any like any news from the last time we talked with you about maybe potentially there being a you know Pixar version of that or a live action because we were talking about earlier why is there not a jingle bell movie like it's perfect christmas oh, it's right down like right down your alley like we line up like it's something that you could bring your kids i could yeah. take my girlfriend to it's just a universal great story thank you uh well there's a new book coming out in a couple of months yes, and yes. That. It's, a, it's an anthology of a lot of early stuff that has not been seen in years and uh and uh, some one-shot stories that I did with her that I don't think have ever been reprinted anyplace. And uh, so that'll be a nice big collection of everything that so people can get acquainted with the character again. That's great. I've been tied to IDW, maybe a new, you know, new issue or some new stuff the year after next year. Uh, but for why there's no movie, it's um, it, there, there are a couple of things. Um, and I, and, I, and I know I'm going to, you know, don't, don't kill the messenger. No, it's, go for it. you know, <laughs> there is a big reluctance to do a movie, a comic book movie with a female lead in it. And I mean, that, that's one of the things people have told me, like Warner Brothers can't get, and this was obviously your, you know, some years back, they said, Wonder, you know, Warner's can't get a Wonder Woman movie off the ground or so, you know, you want to make a, a you know, you want to make a movie about a Santa Claus's daughter. I, if you can't make Wonder Woman, and get people to see that, how are you going to make a movie about a character that very few people know? So I say, well, that aside, you know, it, it is, it is funny, but that was, there was always a big, you know, reluctant thing about, about that. It's just, it's, it's movie making at, at the time. And that's why for the first 10 years, there was nothing. There was also, I, um, I don't know if I remember getting into this last time or not. There was, uh, it, it's always been, problematic sitting down and talking to producers about this character for whatever reason i don't seem to be one of the lucky guys like a uh mark millar or brian bendis who can go in and have a guy say you know here's a lot of money for your character we want you to be involved we want you to have some creative you know capacity in it we want you to be an active part of this 
every meeting I've had with Jingle Bell has been walk. Here's the money. Here's a check. Walk away. You're 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 done with the character. We own it outright. We own every element of this. We own the merchandising. We own um, we own the the rights in perpetuity. You have to give us the artwork in, in your possession because we're buying that as well, and you will not get a credit on the movie either. And this has been like seven or eight times I've been to talk to people about the character, and I'm going like, you know, I said to various agents and managers like, Mark Millar doesn't get that. And he goes, yeah, well, um, uh, when you come up with Wanted, maybe you won't get that either. But I don't know what it is, but they, for whatever reason, people see they do see a lot of potential in Jingle Bell, but they just want to own the own it outright until I can get some sort of a deal where, you know, I at least get some sort of a share in it. I'm, I'm just not talking. I've had people call me up and say. Okay, I made a deal on your Jingle Bell character, and uh, I'm going to need some of the comic books because I've never actually read the comics, but I have a writer in place to write the movie. And I go like, "Who are you?" <laughs> I, went, I had a meeting and I pitched your idea to uh, ABC Family, and they were all set to make a movie. So all I need from you is to give me the name of your lawyer, and I'll get the rights to the character. I go, "Yeah, call my lawyer. That's a good idea." And then um, <laughs> my lawyer will chew them up and spit them out. And that's why there's been no Jingle Bell movie. Everybody wants one, but you know, it's like they all, they all want to take the character. And, uh, and, uh, to this date, I've not been in a situation that I've, I've liked, you know, the rights, it's a right situation. You know, I, I sound like it's sour grapes and it's whining, but I, I've been through some incredible shit on Jingle Bell. And, and you know, I felt like the only way I could preserve any sort of thing with this character is to just, walk away and in some cases i've left the room with people screaming at me and saying you know there's like nobody turns down five thousand easy dollars for the entire rights to your character and it's like <laughs> oh, you know please i thank you for playing but no i mean you know maybe someday if the character you know if i start doing more of the character and there's interest in it and you know it, it makes sense uh I'll, I'll do it but right now i i've I've, uh, I, I'm just more concerned of like holding on to what I have rather than, than exploiting it because, um, yeah, just can't uh, blame that's you. The way it, that's just the way it's been. Right. So, well, but thank you for liking my character. Oh, we, and, uh, we love it. We love Jingle yeah. Bell. It's just like they made Elf. Why can't they make Jingle, Jingle Bell? Bell? Yeah, exactly. Well, just, yeah. Elf, if Fred Claus, they were all guys, you know, they were all, you know, goofy. But here's the weird thing was for a while, Revolution Studios had the option to the character and they were actively looking at, at making a movie of it. And, and, uh, you know, the things changed over there and they weren't able to pursue, you know, the, uh, they, they, they weren't able to, to, uh, to put anything together. But they had a big um, image of one of the co comic book covers in one of the producer's uh, office. And every young actress at the time who came into that office said, I want to do that character. I, that's my elf. You know, can I be elf? Yeah. You know, can I be uh, Fred Claus? Can I be the, you know, the... Can I can I be in a Santa Claus movie? And for whatever reason, Revolution, you know, actually went under before anything could happen. But there was certainly interest both in, by that studio and by, you know, some pretty impressive uh, young ladies who wanted to play the character. So maybe that'll that'll happen again. So I don't know. You know, if, I've had Harley Quinn. Here's another screwy blonde. So uh, <laughs> I th did you watch the recent Ghostbusters? I feel like Kate McKinnon. She's on Saturday Night Live. Okay. I think yeah. she'd be perfect for Jingle Bell. Oh, she'd be awesome. Yeah. She's really, really funny. She is. She's she's just great. And she was great in Ghostbusters. And uh, uh, I have a good friend who's on Saturday Night Live. So I went to see the, the my wife and I went to see uh, them do the show live. And uh, Kate was doing uh, Hillary Clinton and a bunch of her really funny oh, yes. characters. She's just wonderful. Yes. She, she'd be perfect. Uh, Kyle's got another one last question that we'll let Rihanna ask one of them. We'll let you go. Go for it, Kyle. Sure. I'm a bit of a junkie when it comes to upcoming technology, so I gotta I gotta ask if you have any interest in the upcoming Batman Arkham VR title. Um, well, it uh, yes, yes. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, I I don't have I don't have any connection with the Arkham guys anymore, but I have. It's it. I guess I can talk about this. I just worked on a Batman VR uh, project for um, a company called Otoy and Mattel. And we debuted it at the San Diego Comic-Con. And what you're going to be able to do is it's coming out as this Viewmaster pack where you're going to, it's a, it's a total reinvention of the Viewmaster concept where you put it on, you are basically in the Batcave 
it exists in the world around you, and it's the animated Batcave from the classic animated series. Wow. What? We showed two of it at, at Comic-Con. I was there signing with Kevin Conroy and Lauren Lester, and it is reuniting, getting the band back together as far as the original cast goes. So, and it is an episode of Batman that you can play on the, the Viewmaster, and it'll, it'll, it's totally immersive. You go, you're in the Batcave. You are, um, there are animated sequences in it. I, I don't know how much of this I can tell. We showed a lot of it there. but uh, Take all my money. Mark, Mark, <laughs> Mark Hamill is back as the Joker. Tara Strong's uh, back as Batgirl, and she's taken over on, on Harley. And um, we it, it's the look of the show circa you know, 1992. So it's the episode you never, you, you, you know, you, you somehow never saw will exist <laughs> in this interactive format. There's one we haven't seen, guys. <laughs> and we can play. We, yeah. we're, we're, the, we're the Batman. Yeah. Wow. So it'll be out, I guess, October, November. And there was a little promo film that uh, Otoy made and it had the Joker kind of, uh, you know, grinning and giggling and announcing it and saying, I'll see you this fall. And uh, so uh, and they had prototypes of it there and it really looks amazing. So if you've ever wanted to walk around the animated series Batcave, this Every is it. Day. This is a project that started a couple of years ago with Warner Animation, and I was involved with it at the time. And I know Bruce Tim and his team were involved in, in recreating the look of the, of the cave and everything. So it's uh, it, it's pretty it's pretty awesome. Holy, that's incredible! So about yeah. about the Arkham thing, I've, I've uh, the Arkham VR. I've seen it. It looks amazingly impressive, and and the the helmet and everything. It's it looks again, you know, amazing in live action, and yet the. The um, the Batman project I just did is is fun because okay you go from that into the animated series world and it's uh, it's fun you have the best of both. Oh my god, Rihanna! I know you're blown away by that, but go for it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because Miss just came early. Um, <laughs> but um, my last question, I guess, is what advice would you give people that want to do what you do? What's uh, what's your secret? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's I would just say. Just develop what you're what you're good at, at, and as far as storytelling or artwork, and um, become the best at what you can do, and and with uh, with your writing and your artwork, and look. For, and if it's animation you want to do, and if it's a certain specific character or type of show you want to do, whether it's superheroes or it's something more like um, the Disney movies, like Frozen or something like that, just know that you know. Figure out how to make what you do really well dovetail with what they're looking for. So if you're um, if you're an artist who looks to be in animation, study all the styles of animation out there. Figure out what you want to uh, what you want to uh, do with your your talent and and adjust it appropriately, and then really go after it. And the thing is that animation studios are looking to hire all the time in various capacities, and um, I'd say everybody's pretty busy around town, so it's a, it's a good time to get in on it. A lot of the work goes overseas or to uh, uh, other contractors, some of the actual animation uh, or the computer animation, but there's always development work and, and things like that. And also, you know, look, at the same time, you don't want to just narrow it to a job that won't exist or won't exist quite the same way in a few years. So if you're a writer who loves animation, by all means, write some other things. If you're interested in sitcoms, try those, or, or hour-long action shows, or comic books. Um, the writer who has a long career is the guy is the is the writer, male or female, who can diversify a bit and take what they're passionate about. And you know, okay, animation isn't really working out for me right now, but I love sitcoms, so let me write a, uh, a couple of sitcom specs and, and try and get in there. Just keep going, keep working, keep finishing what you're doing. And just pursue it. And I've, I've seen that's that's the best advice I can give because that seems to work out for the most for most of the people I, I talk to. It's just persistence and and knowing when to jump uh, and be quick and, and get in there and show your work. That's awesome. Paul Dini, Dark Knight, a true Batman story. That's the book, the graphic we're, novel. We're holding it up. We right contributed. <laughs> go out if you haven't already go out and get that book paul where can we find you on the internet highway <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm here there is pauldini.com which is sort of like an online home for me I, I check in there occasionally with updates and silly cartoons and things like that um 
and I'm on Twitter and Facebook and various other other places and uh, and so I'm around. Yeah. That's awesome, man! Your second appearance to the show. Thank you so much for coming back. We we Thank you. I said it last time. You literally wrote our childhood, <laughs> and you just you you keep writing more stuff that we love. Thank now, you so much. Not only did you just, uh, Justice League action coming out this oh, fall. Yes. yes. Nice. Are you, you're, a, a, lot, a real fun show. Are you, uh, is that what you're working on next? Is Justice League action? I, I actually finished that about um, well. It, it keeps popping up. I was done with it for the most part about a year ago, and then it. Um, but then I don't know. They'll they'll call me up and say we need a quick cartoon or we need a, a fast script. Do you want to do one of these? And so I guess the last one I officially finished was about three weeks ago. And um, but there, it's a lot of fun. If you like any member of the DC universe, they are in the show. They're about 115 members. So wow. if you wanna, you know, if your taste range from Booster Gold to Wonder Woman to Lex Luthor, they're they're all on the show at some point or another, yeah. and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Fantastic, and, uh, looks great. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks a lot for coming on, man. Sure thing. Thank you. I to meet you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And that's going to be it for episode seventy-one of Shailen on Batman. Uh, make sure that you hit us up on our social media. We're at Facebook at Shailen on Batman. You can find our Twitter at Shailen on Bat. You can hit up Tom at Batman Baselap. Kyle, you, where can we find you? You can find me at Looting Kyle. Where can we find you, Rihanna Holland? Rihanna Holland, R-H-E-A-N-N-A-H-A-A-L-A-N-D. I think you went way too fast, I think, baby. I don't know. No, they can, <laughs> sl- they can slow it down. <laughs> Put it in slow mode. Can I? I, I, can. I could, I mean. And then you can, you can find me at Batman Shanlin. Make sure that you're hitting us up on Twitter, social media, or Facebook. www.podcastempirenetwork.com. Shanlinonbatman.com. Yeah, make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel, Shanlin on Batman. And then, yeah, just hope you enjoyed this episode with Paul Dini. As episode he, 71. 71. As, <laughs> you know, we, we got a lot of good stuff. He talked about Harley Quinn. So. Yes. Harley Quinn! Yeah, yeah. Harley, Harley Quinn. And that's going to be it for episode 71. I am Justin Chandlin. Tom Harbour. Kyle Davis. Brianna Holland. Yeah. And Les. I am the knight. I am the knight.